Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Geek Warning Podcast, brought to you by the Escape Collective, the show where we filter through all the latest happenings in the bike tech world so you know what's junk and what's not. I'm James Huang, and I'm joined today by my tech editor, partner in crime, and resident tool wizard, Dave Rome. Hi, Dave. Hello. Uh, Ronan's out again this week, but don't worry. You'll be hearing plenty from him soon enough. On today's show, we're going to be talking about Factor's new Ostrovam Aero Road Bike, a product category recently revealed to be prone to hacking that you maybe hadn't considered. Uh, and Dave's got some thoughts on anti-seize. Interesting. Dave and I are also going to run you through our favorite gravel shoes, and we've got a little PSA for you this week regarding tubeless sealant and unbalanced tires. Dave, the reason Ronan's out this week, it's actually good news, I think, uh, yeah. is he's actually on his way to meet you in Adelaide for the upcoming Tour Down Under. Uh, what can we expect to see from the two of you in the coming days? Uh, we're probably going to talk about bikes, uh, I believe. I think that's the plan. But uh, yeah, Tour Down Under, it's the start of the world tour. And with that comes a lot of new road tech from the, the top end of the sport. Looks like there's some a few new bikes floating around, some new shoes, some new helmets to talk about. Hopefully, fingers crossed, some new, uh, some new components we spot. And mm. uh, yeah. Failing all that, I'll just look inside mechanics toolboxes and talk about that. <laughs> well, that's always an option. Uh, is it safe to assume that you and Ronan are actually going to be talking about this stuff face-to-face in person and not like sitting opposite each other at a desk and slacking each other? To be confirmed. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> that would actually be a really funny image if that happened. <laughs> um, all right, well, let's get into this week's news, shall we? Uh, speaking of Ronan, he spotted a new Ostrovam aero road bike from Factor at the Australian National Road Race Championships last week. As the name maybe suggests, Factor builds the, well, it builds, they build the current Ostrovam. It's sort of like a do-it-all aero road racer because it's, well, as, as are a lot of bikes these days, it supposedly does both aerodynamic and lightweight, and this mm-hmm. new bike seems to stick to that story. So we don't have a whole lot of official information from Factor yet. Uh, we don't have any, actually, now that I think about it. Uh, I think it's safe to say we can still glean a fair bit of info from the images, uh, which you can also check out if you head over to Ronan's article on escapecollective.com. So uh, on the aero front, we've got a head tube that extends forward, kind of like in front of the steer tube that helps supposedly create a more efficient cross-section, which kind of reminds us of that whole speed sniffer thing that Specialized uses on its latest Tarmac SL8. Ronan thinks it's got deeper fork blades. It definitely has a, a more prominent scallop in the back of the seat tube to presumably shield the rear wheel. It's also got a pretty dramatically slimmed down top tube and seat stays that I'm guessing probably improved ride comfort, might decrease a little bit of weight. Uh, Ronan also noted some taller chain stays that probably increased drivetrain efficiency. But, you know, aside from the frame, we've also got some new wheels from Factor's sister component brand, Black Ink. Uh, when we get official info on this, I have no doubt Factor is going to make some big performance claims about this thing. That announcement is probably going to come pretty soon because I'm going to guess they're going to be using it next week. But Dave, I'm kind of curious. What do you think about how this thing looks? I don't mind most of it, but then you get to the cluster between the the seat tube and the new slim down top tube, and it looks like the seat tube, perhaps the seat post binder has been moved behind the seat post before it was in front of. Yeah, you get there and your eyes kind of just stop for a while. And I guess just how specialized the SL8 has the the speed sniffer, which is kind of a bit of a a polarizing design choice. Um, This one now has the, I don't know what you'd, what you'd call it, but the the speed bulge. <laughs> well, I guess we'll find out what they're going to call it, if anything. One thing that strikes me about this thing, though, is uh, it kind of got me thinking that we might be entering a period where, since aero road bikes are already so good and designers are having to kind of extract smaller and smaller gains from these things, uh, it kind of makes me wonder if we're maybe entering a period where 
engineers and designers are moving toward a more kind of like function over form design philosophy. Mm -hmm. and, and again, in the name of, you know, shaving those watts and shaving those seconds. I mean, bikes, I would argue, maybe aren't quite as pretty as they used to be in some cases. Yeah. But I think not too many people can argue that they're not faster, at least more efficient uh, in terms of aerodynamics and stuff like that. Um, they seem to ride better these days too. And I guess on the plus side, at least, you know, years and years ago you know, at the at the old place, I remember we ran this quiz where we posted a bunch of silhouettes of of modern road racing bikes and you know, kind of asked people to to match up the silhouette with the brand. And it was fairly challenging, I think, for a lot of people. But at least mm. now it seems like bikes are starting to look a little bit more distinctive again. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I don't think looks matter a whole much. A whole lot if you're uh, if you're that much faster and in a breakaway where no one else can see you anyway. So uh, obviously, yeah, the gains aren't that great. But uh, I I think brands aren't, aren't afraid to I guess differentiate themselves aesthetically, which is well I think they need to do that. But I think yeah, as you say, James, it's it's performance over uh, or function over over form, I guess, and that's really not a bad thing when you're talking about a a product that sells itself and with the sole purpose of trying to be faster so it makes sense it does it does and i guess we'll just continue to see how things evolve in terms of the visual language because yeah. i know for a while the reason why we had that sort of quiz was because you know when you have a when everyone is presented with the same problem and the same pretty constrained uh rule book as far as what you're able to do then bikes often tend to look pretty similar um so mm -hmm. who knows i mean maybe this sort of a little bit more unusual awkward slash disjointed look that we're starting to see from some brands might expand into other brands yeah i think so and i guess my my hope for it is that we have you know previously we had different kinds of race bikes you had the lightweight race bike and you had the aero race bike and my hope is what we're now seeing is you just have the race bike uh which happens to be a lightweight aero bike um, but it might also happen to be ugly. And then that leaves the door open for a bike that is more uh, form focused. Perhaps like, you know, looking at Specialized, for example, you have the Athos, which is a very classic looking bike. Uh, so maybe that's that's kind of my, my hope is that, you know, the people that really care about seconds go for the bike where it's it's fully functional, but perhaps not all that pleasing. And then the, the other, you know, that brand might have a, a bike that's, perhaps not designed for for race day but it it's still a performance product but uh you know more prioritizes how it looks and potentially how it rides over how fast it goes well i guess we'll find out soon enough because again as i mentioned earlier you and ronan are going to be roaming the pits all during the tdu and see what you yeah. can find over there looking for ugly uh, bikes yep <laughs> looking for ugly bikes all right dave in addition to this new factor astro vam uh laser's got a new helmet that just got officially announced today uh what are we looking at yeah new uh z1 kineticore so for those that have been around in cycling for a few years will probably remember the the laser z1 is the the company sort of lightweight most ventilated high performance road helmet uh which then got superseded by the the return of the genesis or the g1 in the u.s uh but yeah the the z1 is back and and now with lasers Still relatively new Kineticore, which is their own answer to to MIPS, I guess. I mean, it, it's sort of like the the rotational impact protection, but it's built directly into the foam, and they're, they're using sort of raised blocks to do so. Yeah, I guess the way that the Kineticore setup works, for those of you who are not familiar with it, it's not a separate structure at all. As Dave mentioned, it's, it's, it's molded directly into the foam. It's just sort of how the foam is shaped, and it is sort of just like this array of like raised blocks uh with all yeah. these kind of like 
gaps in between. And the idea is that those blocks sort of collapse under twisting loads um, to provide some sort of rotational protection. Yeah, I mean, so do we have any idea what this thing costs, what it weighs, what laser is saying about it? Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't actually have U.S. pricing uh, in Australia. The it's looking like they're going to retail at four hundred dollars, uh, which is about where most people, most brands, top end helmets sit. But uh, yeah, weight wise, uh, I've only seen weights for the the European U.S. version, which tends to be a little bit lighter traditionally than the Australian version, and that's that's quoted at two hundred and twenty grams for a medium, which from what I can tell makes it about fifteen grams less than the MIPS equipped Genesis. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, it it sort of uh, it seems in every way to supersede the Genesis, but I am told the Genesis will continue in the line for 2024. So that's you know you kind of have the choice between a MIPS equipped helmet or a uh, Kinetico helmet from mm-hmm. Laser. Interesting. Well, one thing that's worth mentioning is that this helmet was tested by the Virginia Tech Lab and it did earn a five star rating. And actually, I do have uh, U.S. pricing and some info for the U.S. version. It's $280 US, uh, and the claim weight is the same. It's 220 grams for a medium. Uh, I actually have one uh, on hand right now. I don't have enough time on it to- You have one on head right now, actually. <laughs> I do have one. If we're being I'm... factual about it. <laughs> <laughs> I am wearing it on my head right now. I don't have enough time riding it to write a full review. Uh, I do have some initial impressions. Uh, this one I have is a medium CPSC approved sample. It's 232 grams. Uh, it's pretty good. Uh, definitely competitive for a, a, one of, I guess, what's supposed to be a very lightweight helmet. It's pretty well ventilated, I'd say, overall. Uh, definitely lots of vents, lots of open area, and it's particularly good on kind of slower climbs where you need you know, kind of like more room for heat to escape. Still not super, super stoked on the flow-through ventilation because uh, one thing I've noticed about the Kinetikor structure or, the, or like Kinetikor-styled helmets from Laser is all those gaps between those foam blocks does give air room to kind of circulate around, but not like incredibly freely, not as not as much yeah. as if you had like a they're huge not, internal channel. Yeah, they're not gaping big channels, are they? No, kind of, no, not like that. And this yeah, and this Z1 is similar up. to that. It does work pretty well. Um, so far, again, I haven't had a chance to test it in like searing hot temperature. That's probably something I'm going to have to leave to you since you're heading into summer. But overall, I've been pretty happy with it. I mean, I, I think it's an improvement over the previous Z1. If nothing else, it's an improvement, if I remember correctly, in terms of uh, like protection ratings from, from Virginia Tech. So okay. that's good to see. Yeah. And I guess like traditionally, what's attracted me to laser helmets, I've used quite a lot of laser helmets over the years, and why I've done so is just purely the comfort. Uh, their Rolsys uh, retention system is very comfortable, easy to adjust on the fly, doesn't irritate the, the occupable bone at all, or, you know... Or my the back of my hairline as some helmets do, and uh, I think that's that's a big thing for why a lot of people tend to to get laser. Because I'd say historically, laser's never been the benchmark for ventilation for weight. They've always kind of been felt like a, a bit of a step back from other helmets in that sense. But the comfort has always been a big one for me, and they do seem to fit a wide range of uh, skull shapes. Yeah, the comfort, the fit. Uh, I think many people will find that they have like a pretty low profile fit so they do a pretty good job of kind of minimizing that mushroom effect and i think a lot of their helmets just look good yeah so yeah i'm uh i'm expected to get my my head into a sample and once i land in adelaide for two down under and yeah hopefully uh see how it goes in the heat there cool well uh dave you and i should probably tag team on a proper review of this thing sooner than later so stay tuned on that Dave, this next piece of news might hit you in particular a little hard. Eh, I don't know, maybe not personally, but maybe just sort of philosophically. 
so I came across an article in, uh, in this publication called Ars Technica. Uh, it describes a kind of a, a number of potential hacking vulnerabilities in some network-enabled electronic torque wrenches from Bosch. Uh, so these are apparently used most often in like factory settings. And uh, I, the reason why they have a network connectivity aspect is because everything can, can be controlled from one central location to make sure like you know, all the assembly specs are what they should be, so on and so forth. And, but, and data collection as well, that every, yes, you know, tracking. every, every uh, yeah, everything's tracked and serial numbered, so. However, according to this article, uh, there's a problem with that because those wrenches apparently can be hacked. Uh, and the issue is that the user will think that they're applying the right torque, but they might actually be under or over tightening fasteners, which certainly, again, in a factory setting could wreak all sorts of havoc. Uh, there's also the issue, as you said, like if you're using this information for tracking, if that information is not accurate or it doesn't reflect reality, that is a whole other problem. Dave, I'd imagine you have some thoughts on this. Somewhat. I mean, my first thought is that I don't imagine this being all that applicable or worrying for the bicycle trade, but maybe I'm maybe I'm naive on that. But uh, yeah, I can imagine it's uh, like corporate su- sabotage being a thing in, in automotive circles and this being quite a worry, but in, in bicycle trade, I'm, I'm still imagining that a lot of things are still put together with impact guns, which are not torque limited. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, I, I don't think that's really fair. I know there are torque wrenches used in assembly lines, but uh, yeah, I, I think, yes, for some industries, this is a worry, and, and I think they'll quickly sort out those vulnerabilities, and uh, I think a lot of in- other industries perhaps don't have the, uh, the tracking in place that this is even a worry for them, and they're probably just using preset manual torque wrenches that are calibrated every few weeks. Therefore, they can't be hacked. This certainly does highlight the idea that there are certain advantages to staying analog. Yes. Yep, absolutely. Or just, yeah, just not connecting your torque wrench to the internet, Um, which, come to (laughs) think of it, I don't think I have a torque wrench that does that. I have one that you can plug in, but but yeah, I don't... uh, I don't think this is a an issue for us to be concerned about. Dave, I almost I almost I almost hesitate to say this or to to bring this up because I kind of get the impression that this is one tool that you're not so curious to check out that you're actually going to go buy it yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't have a a need or desire to own a uh, factory level network based torque wrench. <laughs> okay, do you have any idea how much those things would cost? Uh, I'm guessing. More than ten grand a piece. Dear God, I feel like I feel like we should look this up. Uh, so a, a Snap-on Tech Angle, which is not Wi-Fi enabled, uh, but is certified tool, they're about fifteen hundred Aussie, and that's kind of a, a broadly widely used tool. But that's uh, but yeah, I think the these Bosch sort of uh, the ones I saw the Wi-Fi enabled, they're actually a, an electric torque wrench as well. So they they'll they'll do the bolt up for you. Whew! I just found a refurbished one for two thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's uh, yeah. let let's not. Sky's add that to the your limit. List. Yeah, let's not add that to your list. All right, another bit of short news out of the UK. There's an automotive repair outfit called QuickFit uh, that apparently is fairly popular. Or at the very least, they're pretty big. Uh, and mm, I know six hundred outlets. Yeah, I know we mentioned this briefly in a previous episode that they were at least kind of like looking into or kind of had started the process for purchasing this bicycle repair and maintenance outfit called Fettle, and that has now been finalized. So uh, Fettle, they have a few locations in Bristol and London, 
uh, and they're they're pegged to be sort of like a well they they say it's a faff free bicycle maintenance outfit. So they either come and come to you and pick up your bike, or you drop it off in one of their outlets, and uh, they apparently get your bike back to you pretty quickly. I have no idea how good the service is, how qualified their mechanics are. Hard to say. Uh, well, at least hard to say for me anyway from afar. But the interesting thing here is just the fact that we have an automotive repair outlet purchasing outright a bicycle repair outlet. With uh, what appears to be clear plans of diversifying the automotive stuff to to offer more sustainable transport maintenance. Uh, specifically, I guess they're catering towards the growth in e-bikes and, and uh, cargo bikes, which, uh, and certainly when you think about the way e-bike servicing is going and cargo bike ser- servicing is going, often it has more in common with automotive servicing than it does with bicycle servicing. And Certainly in, in Europe, this is perhaps changing, but it hasn't elsewhere in the world where a lot of bicycle workshops aren't equipped to service cargo bikes. They don't have the the stands to lift the cargo bikes up. They don't have the machinery to do it. Uh, yeah, they might not even have, say, like the uh, the skill set to, to handle some of the wiring requirements. So, yeah, it's, it, it's an interesting move and it kind of makes sense to see the someone from the automotive world make the move. It does. Uh, I'm very curious to see how this pans out longer term. I would love to hear from an Escape Collective member who maybe is familiar with one or both of those outfits to let us know what they think about this. Um, mm. I do think it's fascinating how, as the transportation industry looks, like kind of how they're progressing and how they're how they're evolving more from just like a straight automotive sort of entity to just looking more at transporting people around and you know micro mobility is part of that. And I know that automotive companies have certainly been making that change in mindset internally. And I guess this is just another sign that the automotive industry in general is maybe making that shift. So, yeah, interesting one yep. to follow. We'll see. Yeah, one to follow. And uh, yeah, you know where to go now if your bike needs an oil change. <laughs> I mean, I guess mountain bikes sort of technically do need oil changes now anyway. Yeah, roll-offs <laughs> and other internal GitHubs. But yeah, anyway. Dave, uh, speaking of tools and workshop stuff, though, I'm kind of curious what you got on your mind this week, because you do actually have something on your mind, and we kind of skipped this segment last week because we were just getting going for the year. Yeah, I mean, on my mind, uh, it was actually put in my mind by uh, Effie Shaw, who runs uh, Clubhouse X Cyclery, I believe, in New York, but uh, he asked for my thoughts on uh, something Silka just announced, which was uh, Silka announced an anti-seize, and... Uh, anti-seize has nothing new about it, but I guess Josh Portner's point with this anti-seize is that he's recently found out that, uh, in aeronautical circles, they, they don't use the anti-seize that I guess is very common in bicycles, which is a, a copper-based anti-seize. Rather, they use one that is nickel-based because it's, it's far less reactive to, uh, galvanic corrosion with, um, dissimilar materials. Uh, so yeah, so Silk has put its name onto a an, a nickel-based anti-seize, and I have to say uh, it's interesting. Uh, I think there's nothing wrong with using copper-based anti-seize, and, and I'll get to why why you would use anti-seize. But, uh, but yeah, Silk's nickel anti-seize sort of uh, pricked up my ears as to, you know, if there's a better product out there, I'd, I'd like to try it. And yeah, so I have ordered some, but uh, I guess, yeah, it's it's one of those products where... Silka's presentation, it comes in a little syringe and it's probably a good amount of anti-seize for, for people that need it for a few, may say, titanium bolts going into an aluminium stem or even steel bolts into an aluminium stem. But 
Uh, yeah, it's it's Aussie prices is thirty five dollars a tube for twelve milliliters of the stuff, uh, which is twelve milliliters. Yeah, Dear God, which is uh, that's quite a lot of bike tax applied. So by comparison, I bought a five hundred milliliter tub from uh, there's a Loctite LB seven seven one. Brands Permatex and CRC also offer nickel based anti seize. I paid eighty five Aussie for this 500 tub 500 mil tubs that's half a pound of, of anti-seas um, <laughs> I mean that, that's going to be a lifetime seven, supply 17 times cheaper <laughs> uh, so I guess the what my point on my mind is that there are a lot of products in the bicycle industry historically that were just repackaged and rebranded and savvy shoppers should consider that when they're buying maintenance products and and look for yeah, I guess for, for lower cost alternatives wherever possible, because I think that's a, a good win for people that, that care about their bike maintenance. Um, and I think Grease and Anti-Seize and yeah, I guess those two product categories are probably the two prime examples where very rarely are, are those products truly unique to the bike industry. I think things like chain lubes and even degreases now, I think that's sort of separated a little bit and matured to the point that there are cycling specific products there, especially chain lubes. Uh, but yeah, I think there's still some good gains to be had for, for the savvy shopper. It is interesting to talk about the use of anti-seize versus grease. Uh, yeah. Because I know one of the things that... So Dave, you and I both worked at Bike Radar way back in the day. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, one of the things that... Uh, well, I guess this is a story idea that dates back to, to way back then. Is uh, I was having a conversation with one of our then colleagues at the time, Paul Smith, who... Um, his level of education and background, certainly, I would say kind of, uh, one above and beyond the bike industry, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And I remember he and I were having a pretty deep conversation about different fastener styles and different sort of assembly compounds, grease and anti-seize and that sort of thing. And we started talking about like the, like the NASA, like the fastener, uh, manual, that sort of thing. Uh, and he certainly was of the opinion, if I remember correctly back then, that we should be using anti-seize in the bike industry more often than we are. Yes. Totally. And, and the reasoning is, is that uh, anti-seize is kind of a effectively like particle based. So, uh, yeah, you get little particles of, in this case, metal, uh, non-reactive metals and, or, or low reactive metals. And uh, those particles stay in between the, the surfaces, between the thread so of those dissimilar metals. So, by contrast, the grease actually often gets pushed out under torque. So say like the the head of the bolt pushing against the surface that's being clamped to will actually push the grease out so then you can still get galvanic corrosion between those two surfaces whereas anti-seize is is far more stubborn and it'll keep that sort of powdery metal in place underneath that that bolt head and and almost ensure against uh against galvanic corrosion so yeah certainly wherever dissimilar metals exist on a bike which is pretty much every threaded surface on modern bikes anti-seize makes sense um where I sort of diverge a little bit from Silka's advice, and, and Silka has a good video on this. Josh Portner does go into why nickel-based anti-seize and, and the properties of it on, on his YouTube channel, on, on Silka's YouTube channel. But I, I think where I diverge a little bit is, is they also recommend it for like bearing seats, for like a steel bearing in a, in a carbon frame, so like a, an IS headset bearing. Uh, and I personally believe that I've seen too, much, too many times where that whatever grease or, or whatever substance you put inside inside there can migrate into the bearing. It can it can pass through the seal once it gets mixed with water or contaminants and, and it can actually uh yeah, I think anti seize is a 
abrasive enough in, in its ways that you probably don't want to put, be putting that directly against a, a bearing and, and risking that. So I would probably still say go with a, a smoother waterproof grease in those scenarios. But, but yeah, certainly for, for threaded surfaces, especially if you're investing in titanium hardware, anti-seize is, is the way to go. That said, I still think copper anti-seize is sufficient. So I wouldn't be running out throwing away your current entities if you have some i think yeah any kind of uh copper based entities is still is still sufficient for for bicycle needs even if rolls royce engines aren't using it <laughs> well either way which uh with whatever anti-seize compound you decide to use whether you are already using that or are going to start to uh make sure you've got some really good soap on hand <laughs> yeah because definitely once that stuff gets into your skin or gets on your hands or whatever it is very hard to remove yeah, there's some very funny uh, memes going around oh my God. Instagram for like uh, automotive <laughs> mechanics where you get the new guy to put antices on a bolt and all of a sudden he's just coated in it. Coated, head yeah. to toe, yeah. head to toe. I would love to know the yeah, whoever the person is who actually is covered head to toe in antices. I would love to know how long it took them to get all that stuff out of their skin and whether or not they have some sort of like metallic blood poisoning or something now. But uh, yeah, so- uh, further on my mind, as a as a base of that anti-seize, I need to do some testing around this, but I actually think uh, anti-seize might, might be the answer with all the dub crank bolts getting stuck. Um, because potential, like there's there's two things that are on my mind with that, which is the first, I believe the like any grease and, and, and such is getting pushed out of the bolt head and it's the bolt head that's causing a lot of, uh, a lot of friction uh, that you need to break free. But yeah, the other element is, I believe, the aluminium bolt being used is going under quite a lot of stretch, which is also why it, it takes an insane amount of torque to break free. But uh, I'm thinking the anti-seize could be the answer to half the problems. Well, you and I are going to have to compare notes on that because I know that I have dealt with dub crank bolts uh, that were installed with copper anti-seize that were mm-hmm. still a bear to get out. Gotcha. Uh, maybe nickel anti-seize will be better. Well, I guess, yeah. like I said, we'll, we'll compare notes later. Sure. Yep. All right. Let's, uh, let's take a quick break here. All right, Dave, it's time for this week's pick one segment where we choose a product category and then we, re- uh, then we reveal our personal favorites in that category. So, Dave, I, well, I didn't see that you had picked a category for no, this week's No, I think you picked one. one. So, so I went ahead and picked one. I went ahead and chose gravel shoes because mm. uh, I'm pretty sure that's one that we have not discussed previously. And so. I'm going to start with you. Do you have any, you any favorites in that category? I often just... I'm a little bit boring and often settle on using Shimano shoes because I find them comfortable for my feet uh, and they, they don't cause me any issues and they, they typically leave me with the, the fewest complaints after a few hours. So that's why I, yeah, I, I'd say the Shimano RX-8 is, has kind of become my go-to shoe for that, for that reason. It's comfortable, it's light, it does, it does everything you need to and they're a high-end shoe, but they're not so ridiculously expensive that, you know, if I want to go clambering up rocks, I don't really think twice about scuffing them up. Well, let me ask you this. What sort of characteristics do you look for in a gravel shoe? Gravel shoe. So, I mean, for, for years, and I still kind of go back and forth, but for years, I just kind of would have just said use a cross-country shoe. But these days, I actually have come to the conclusion that what separates a gravel shoe is how stable it sits against the pedal body. So, I'm, I'm using SPD pedals. Shimano SPD. Uh, and what I find the difference is, is I actually get a little bit more rock with my cross-country shoes on that pedal body. Um, what did we call the toggle, I guess, is what we were calling it? Toggle or yaw. I think either yeah. one of those. Yeah. So a little bit of like um, 
yeah, the ability to sort of swing your knee left Actually, to right. No, sorry, sense. I think you're right. Toggle, not yaw. Yeah. Yaw is a different thing. Yeah, that toggle. So when you're mountain biking, uh, being more dynamic on the bike, I find is is quite helpful, and you can kind of weight the outside of the pedal or uh yeah just sort of move your body around more uh and i find that that toggle is actually we're only talking maybe a millimeter here but it's i find that beneficial to kind of being able to swing my legs around more and move my feet off plane a little bit whereas yeah on a gravel shoe i kind of want it to feel more like a road pedal system where you're actually locked in with zero toggle and you don't need to be as dynamic on the bike and and i feel that's the biggest difference here is that the gravel shoe feels like a road shoe the mountain bike shoe still lets me sort of maneuver the bike and let, let the bike float between me a little bit. Mm, interesting. I think we're pretty much on the same page there because, uh, I mean, uh, I think we may have slightly different preferences and sort of like what brands of shoes fit our particular feet best. Yeah. Uh, not not at all unusual. Uh, yeah. Like my favorite gravel shoe still is like the old specialized S-Works 6 XC, which I mean, those have been mm-hmm. out for a few years and discontinued yeah. for a while now. You know, the gravel riding that we have around here, it, it, it typically, you know, really doesn't require very much time on foot. So I usually go for shoes that have a very road-like fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like shoes that are quite stiff, generally yeah. speaking, because again, like you don't really don't have to worry about walking all that much. Uh, definitely don't like very much toggle at all in the, in the interface between the shoe and the pedal. But for me, I think the biggest thing is I just kind of wanted to have like a really kind of like efficient and kind of connected feel. Yeah. I still want it to be comfortable to ride in all day because, I mean, oftentimes those gravel rides are pretty long and uh, specialized shoes tend to fit my feet pretty well. But uh, yeah, tread's not really like super important for me. Like I want it to have some in case I have to scramble mm. around a little bit, but it's not usually that big of a yeah. deal. I would say that's the weakness of most gravel shoes I've used is they've kind of gone a little like bit too, too much on, the, on the, the saving weight side. And, and I think, yeah, you can either get like, a, say, a Shimano XE5, which has like this rubber Michelin tread, but then it's a flexi sole. Or you can go like uh, you know Shimano RX8, or in your case the the Specialized, and it's like they've gone a little bit too hard on the tread, so it's not at that point it's not good for walking. I feel like somewhere in the middle might be a nice balance, and I know there are shoes that achieve this, but then we come back to the the cost slash durability slash comfort question. You got any preference for closure types like boa or laces or you know that sort of thing? Velcro. Uh, I, I typically. Yeah, I mean, bow is sort of my preference, just purely out of convenience. Um, lace shoes, I find, you know, there it happens from time to time, and especially when gravel riding, where you get a little pebble in your shoe, and a boa, you can almost take, you know, you can take the, your foot out of the shoe while with it still clips into the bike while you're rolling along. Uh, whereas you're not doing that with a lace shoe. So for me, I I, I find bow is just a pure convenience point of view to be really good. Velcro would probably be my second choice, but. Velcro also wears out more readily than, than a boa does and isn't replaceable in the same way. So yeah, for me, boa. It's funny that we were talking so much about toggle with, uh, with gravel pedals and shoes and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, I can very much see how Richard Bryan, the original owner of Speedplay, how he would have come across the idea or been inspired by the idea for his old Speedplay scissor. Because I remember when I was talking with him uh, in their booth at Sea Otter when they were about to introduce those things, how... He had designed this interface where the cleat provided all the stability on mm. the pedal body because it absolutely yep. just would not move. And I can definitely see how that idea was very appealing. I mean, it's unfortunate that the execution really was kind of ended up being pretty lacking because I, I do feel like the idea of that has a lot of merit because like you were saying how the tread on a lot of gravel shoes is a little bit lacking. But I also wonder if that harder tread design is also the reason why we like them while pedaling is because they provide so much more stability on the pedal body. Yeah, because um, oftentimes that rubber is harder. So 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess we haven't really run across much, you know, too many options where you really do get the best of both across the board. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think. Was it there was a brand? I think I'm going to say is City that was doing replaceable tread, but you could actually shim the block that surrounded the cleat. Uh, specialized. Oh, Specialized. Oh, you're right. Yeah, Specialized, specialized. their, yeah, their that latest. Was smart. That was very the, smart. I, I think like the latest Recon or something like that. It was one of, yeah. the, one of those models offered that sort of thing. Yeah, it was like a similar style of replaceable block to what CD has offered for a long time. But mm-hmm. just, as you said, like, yeah, I think it had a little shim options to, to really take up that play. But yeah, anyway, if you got any specific shoes that you particularly like for gravel, certainly feel free to chime in in the comment section below in the, in the associated write-up on escapecollective.com if you... If you want to just join in the conversation there. Keeping in mind, shoes are very personal. Like James's, very, very James's personal. pick I have, and I don't use them because they, they dig into the front uh, tendon of, of my foot. So yeah, otherwise I would agree with James's pick on that if they if they were actually comfortable for me. But Oh, my, my tendon is obviously so much more supple than yours. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Dave, let's move, on to, uh, uh, let's move on to our PSA for the week because we do have one. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, so this is something that I came across as I was actually getting my fat bike ready for the winter season. I haven't ridden it in quite a long time. Things uh, I don't say. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So uh, the thing that I ran to with that bike, it's uh, I do have that bike set up tubeless because uh, turn that fat bike tubes are really, really heavy. They're like 450 grams a piece. Uh, yeah, so right. converting to tubeless, actually, it does result in some pretty substantial weight savings there. And but frees up for, the world's butyl supplies. <laughs> indeed, yeah. For a bike like that, where it's kind of like a more of a seasonal thing for me, uh, it just kind of reminded me that uh, it's a good idea for those of you who are running tubeless tires, uh, especially if you have multiple bikes and maybe one that doesn't get ridden very much. Uh, so for this week's PSA, I just want you to be mindful of old tubeless sealant that may have dried up into a big clump at one spot in the tire, mainly because like it's not so much that you're, it'll result in like more flats or anything like that, but that imbalance really could, I mean, depending on how much sealant is in there, but that imbalance I mean, it could be annoying at, at the very least, but it actually could be potentially dangerous depending on how much sealant is clumped in there and kind of like how light your tires and wheels are. So yeah, if, if it's a setup where you are finding where you're constantly adding more sealant, kind of season after season, you might find that you've got a couple of big old piles in there. So I would advise for those seasonal bikes kind of to you know pop, pop one of the tire beads off and just kind of scrape out the old clump that's in there. Uh, and this is actually an old tip that I got from, uh, from a, an old GCN episode. I, I don't know if it was, if it was Sai who presented this, but, uh, I mean, I can't remember if it came from a viewer of GCN, but they were advising that a really good tool to scrape out old sealant in a tire casing is an old aerosol can cap, like the little plastic cap that yeah. you see on paint cans and that sort of thing, because it actually has kind of a sharp edge, really good at scraping out that dried latex. Uh, and the curve is pretty much perfect for tires. Uh, good tip. Uh, yeah, I'd say... For a lot of people, they just top up their sealant through the valve core and, and would never know they have clumps of dried sealant pulled in certain sections of their tire. So yeah, I think uh, once in a while, popping the bead off and, uh, and inspecting is, is probably a very, very good advice to, to ensure you don't have these clumps forming. Yeah, I think if the tire is evenly coated in, in sealant, I, I feel like that's pr- perfectly fine to, to leave in place. I wouldn't be feeling the need to clean out the inside of the tire. But yeah, if you've got obvious lumps or or stanimals hiding in your tire, then then take those out. And and yeah, those those clumps, if they are dried to the to the sidewall, will actually impact the ability the the sealant in your tire because they can sort of uh, I guess act as a bit of a wall uh, and a pooling spot for for the sealant to hang on to. So um, they'll only get bigger, and your sealant will be less efficient as a result of them. Or just run tubes. Or run tubes. Yep. <laughs> 
All right. Well, uh, this is going to be a little bit of a shorter episode this week, mainly because I know that Dave, Dave, you and Ronan are going to have an awful lot to talk about in the next coming weeks with TDU. We do have a few more little bits of news to share before we wrap up this week's episode of Geek Warning. This seems to be a pretty heavily shoe-oriented episode because uh, one of the things that we saw not pretty pretty recently on the feet of Remco Evenepoel, uh, and given these shoes super minimal appearance, we spotted some new specialized shoes on his feet. Uh, these may be a revamp of their ultra-lightweight S-Works Exos model, uh, mm. which, I mean, let's be honest here, maybe didn't get the absolute warmest reception because they're pretty strange. I mean, those original Exos shoes had sort of like a super stretchy sock-like construction. Like they basically wore socks with a boa on top, on top yeah. and a carbon plate. So Remco shoes, they, they still have a single boa per shoe, but it's kind of in a more conventional location on the side and kind of has what appears to be a conventional tongue instead of just sort of the sock-like construction, which may or may be just down to the coloring. It's hard to say. Almost kind of looks like there might be a single, single Velcro strap up front too. Uh, again, hard to say given the rather grainy images that we've seen so far, but Definitely super low profile, I'm guessing super light, uh, maybe even still flirting with that 300 gram weight figure of the current Exos, but you know, we'll find out soon enough. I'll make sure, we'll make sure that Dave, you, and Ronan are keeping Looking an eye out the for ground. that thing, so yeah. it'll be around somewhere. Maybe more exciting on the shoe front, as far as everyday riders are concerned, uh, also from Specialized, or kind of what appears to be a redesigned Torch 3.0. So these are basically uh, like a slightly decontented version of the S-Works Torch, from what we can tell. So these haven't been announced yet, but someone sent me an early listing from an online retailer that had all sorts of juicy details. So uh, like a $230 US retail price, which is a pretty solid price point. What appears to be the same last and kind of pared down heel counter as the current S-Works Torch. Definitely some emissions. You don't get a, like a proper carbon composite plate from what we can tell. Doesn't look like you get that same kind of stretchy toe box. So it's not, maybe not quite as comfy if you've got some like, you know, bunions and that sort of thing. Uh, but for barely half the price of the S-Works model, I am definitely curious to try these out. Yeah, because that $200-ish price point, I'd, I'd say for a lot of cycling shoes, is kind of where it's at. Sticking to the shoe theme, spotted another pair of new road shoes on Lidl Trek rider Tom Scoinch. We have no info on this at all. Uh, just one single picture to share. Maybe not share because we're talking about a podcast here. But it's got a pretty minimal layout, no material overlaps. We're get, we'll, take a, we'll take a closer look for these at TDU and hopefully have some more info to share. Other little bits of news, regular listeners of Geek Warning, you'll know that we're pretty big fans of UK brand Ratio Technology. We got a new aluminum cable spool if you want to upgrade your old SRAM double tap mechanical road levers. Uh, those can sometimes wear out over the t- over time because the stock ones are plastic. Or they just uh, break. So, or Yeah, or they just break. But if you're looking to upgrade, uh, it sounds like you actually might need a new cable spool to, for some of the upgrade kits that they have. Pretty cheap, 25 British pounds, machined aluminum, quite pretty. Uh, good to see that. And then yeah, uh, cool. my last bit of news relates to another British brand, although this certainly isn't any good news by any means. This one's kind of hits me pretty hard for, for kind of what I remember as a, as a kid growing up and getting into cycling. So mm-hmm. longtime mountain bikers, you'll no doubt be familiar with the iconic Orange brand. They have sadly just announced that they're in administration, so otherwise known as bankruptcy here in the U.S., so I don't know if it's yet another casualty of the shift in market preferences, maybe some recent difficulties in the difficulties in the bike industry in general but super bummed super super bummed and we'll see what turns out there yeah. but it's probably not going to be a great outcome no it's an iconic brand I'd, I'd like to think they're going to trade trade their way through administration and come out as a you know a smaller more agile company with without the without debt uh yeah i feel like a, a that company's been around for for decades and it, Forever. it certainly would be sad to see it go and i feel like there's enough strength in that brand that it'll survive in some capacity fingers crossed 
It's hard because, I mean, they're still making their frames out of aluminum primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just not as competitive a material. It's, it will, I should say it's not viewed as high performance of material as carbon fiber. Their frames were still made in the UK, so they were yeah. quite expensive. Yeah. Uh, it was just real hard to compete. Uh, and I hope, like, the first thing that I thought of was US brand Turner bikes because kind of a summer, somewhat similar, similar personality, like, you know, made in the US, aluminum primarily. Yeah. Priority on simple running, simple maintenance, though, from Orange, which yeah. is, is kind of yeah. their, their, their main story, has always been. Uh, Dave, you got a couple last little bits of news before we wrap up, too, don't you? Yeah, uh, some more interesting news. Uh, Envy's parent company, Amos Sports Inc., uh, has filed for IPO on the New York Stock Exchange. So that includes brands like Arcteryx and Wilson Sporting Goods. Um, $10 billion value. $10 billion. Yeah, which is like, seven envy wheels so it's <laughs> anyway that's interesting it'll be very interesting to see uh because yeah amos sports obviously used to include mavic which got sold off quite a few years ago and yeah it'll be interesting to see whether envy i guess continues in the portfolio long term and and what that means for the brand but if you look at the trajectory they've been on recently they've you know they're, they're sponsoring a race team with bikes and it, it looks like their their plan is to continue growing into a, a full-blown bike company not just a, a components company i think that'll be intriguing to watch other industry news uh brompton out of the uk have been certified a b corp so good on them a last little bit is a new product from 9.8 who are probably best known for their dropper posts but they also had some is headsets uh angle adjust headsets which were very unique so is being kind of just like the drop-in bearing where where there's no cup um the cup's actually part of the frame uh and you could adjust the angle of your your head angle with these um they've they've now expanded the range so they've also now uh got options for zero stack headsets and external cup headsets of common fitments uh and yeah expect to pay about 99 us dollars for a whole headset which is pretty impressively uh well priced but uh i guess yeah the downsides of these systems is that they uh they work by putting the bearing above the but above and below the head tube so will be increasing the stack and and i guess the the ride height of your bike so that's something to factor in into if this is right for you interesting well uh i will say i'm definitely a big fan of angle adjust headsets particularly for i mean really you never see these on anything other than mountain bikes but um with the way that mountain bike geometry changes so quickly it is nice that you can you know sometimes reach for a product like this that doesn't cost that much money to kind of modernize your bike a little bit and bring it into some more progressive handling yeah, uh, without having to buy a new bike. So, yep. uh, good, but yeah, good hopefully to see. the steer tube's long enough. Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. Well, if not, you know, there are companies that can press in a new one. Well, that will do it for this week's episode of Geek Warning. So a couple of quick announcements. Uh, don't forget to sign up for Dave's new tools and workshop newsletter threaded. It's not really that new anymore, I guess. Uh, and also sign up for Ronan's members-only podcast, Performance Process, uh, where he dives deep into all the gear and training optimization you need to go faster. We also have members-only episodes of Geek Warning that'll run every other week on top of the regular weekly show. I think we're going to, I think you and Rona are going to try and record one this week, maybe. Uh, So definitely don't miss those either. Finally, you can get access to all that and more by signing up to be a member of Escape Collective. Just head over to escapecollective.com slash join and then select the monthly or annual option. Uh, And if that is still too much to ask, at least do us the favor of heading over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review since that does help more people find the show. Yeah, I think it's worth reminding anyone that's tuning in for the first time that Escape Collective is wholly member-funded. So you, we didn't read any ads on the podcast because we don't have any ads to read. 
Uh, and if you go to escapecollective.com, what you won't find annoying pop-ups. Uh, well, you might find annoying pop-ups asking you to subscribe to us, but you won't find annoying pop-ups for a Jeep. Yeah, I think that's worth uh, reminding as well, is that when we do photo galleries, the photos take up the whole screen and you can see all the photos without being interrupted. Uh, Weird. And, and that doesn't just happen by itself. That only happens with the support of our members. So please help us create the content that the internet deserves. Indeed. Well, I think it's a general rule. And when you can't tell what's the content and what's the ad, that is a problem. All right. Well, anyway, that really will do it for us this week now. So stay tuned for a whole bunch of new tech sightings, as I said, to come from Dave and Ronan at TDU. And in the meantime, we'll see you next time for another episode of Geek Warning. Cheers. Cheers.